What is up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Rewired Soul Podcast. It's your host, Chris, and today I have such a fantastic woman on here as a guest. It is Amanda Ripley, and her new book is called High Conflict, all right? So one of the reasons uh, that I really, really enjoy this topic and appreciate it and like to learn about it and see the conversations about it um, is because as, as many of you know, right, right now, and you know, it's, it's, it's part of life is that a lot of people, we suck at conflict, right? We don't know how to have healthy conversations or you're like me. And I used to be a people pleaser for a very very long time and I was just conflict avoidant, right? Like I would just go with the flow and stuff like that at the detriment to my own mental health and well-being and all that stuff. But on the other end, I, I used to have anger problems and it was probably because I would avoid conflict and then I would just blow up on certain people. You know what I mean? So now when I look at, you know, like uh, just the way we can't have conversations about politics or different ideas and people are afraid to talk, it's like, how do we have healthy conflict, right? How do we have good conversations? And Amanda, her book, like when, when I read her book, she, she kind of discusses what her childhood was like and how she, you know, sort of saw conflict. And, and then she goes through the book and, you know, we'll talk about it in this conversation. But anyways, I could really relate to her. And the book was just phenomenal. It was phenomenal. And I included it this week for the scientific thinking and healthy conflict, because as you've listened to in the previous episodes, we've talked about uh, people who deny science and, you know, and things like that. And we need to be able to have just better conversations, even with ideas that we don't like. So Amanda, she talks about the difference between high conflict and like, you know, good conflict. So that's exactly what we talk about today. All right. But anyways, before we get started, if you are new here, make sure you are following the podcast. If you're listening on Apple, make sure you rate it and review it. You know why? Because it really helps out. It helps the little algorithm push it out to people who might be interested in these amazing conversations that we have with some just awesome authors. So rate it, review it, and make sure you check out the description below. Not only will Amanda's information, like social media links be down below but a link to her fantastic new book, High Conflict. All right, so without further ado, here is my conversation with Amanda Ripley. Hello, Amanda, and thank you so much for coming on the Rewired Soul podcast. And and thank you for your book. Like, I, I personally feel that discussions around healthy conflict and disagreement are so, so needed in this polarized world. And you start off the book uh, by sharing a story about witnessing conflict when you were a child. And I, I could definitely relate to that. And as you go through the introduction, you explain how high conflict and healthy conflict are two very different things. So 
for those who have yet to read the book, even though I know they're going to go and get it right after this episode, but for those who haven't read the book yet, can you explain what you define as high conflict and what is healthy conflict? And can you also kind of discuss like what, what are the benefits to having healthy conflict aside, uh, instead of just this unhealthy high conflict? High conflict is the kind of conflict that can start small, but it gradually takes on a life of its own. It's usually an us versus them kind of conflict. And in high conflict, we start to make significant mistakes about the other side or ourselves or the problem. All of our normal cognitive biases and emotions are heightened in high conflict. And usually everyone involved suffers to different degrees. Conversely, there's something I've come to know of as good conflict, which can also be, you know, heated and stressful and uncomfortable, but it goes somewhere worth going. There's a sense of movement. Questions get asked. You don't know exactly what's going to happen. Whereas with high conflict, high conflict is the destination. You know, if, I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but you can scroll through the headlines on your phone sometimes and feel like you know what the story is going to say. Like you don't need to read it, right? If it's about politics or something that's, you know, very polarizing. That's high conflict is there's a total death of curiosity and humility. You make mistakes. Both sides make a lot of mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. And this is this is one of the reasons, uh, like, uh, shameless plug real quick, but uh, I wrote my book, Rewire Your Anger, because I used to have just insane anger issues, right? And kind of like what, what you're talking about is is there's like it's it's completely out of control and it is like this destination right and uh i i reflect on it and i look back and i i think about you know the uh uh the lack of understanding the lack of being able to listen the 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 inability to try to come to some sort of agreement or resolution or compromise or or whatever it is and i think you you bring up a great example too when it comes to the news and that's where i get torn a lot too because you know as a content creator you know i understand like you know some of these outlets are trying to make clickable headlines and everything like that but when you combine that with like the biases and playing into polarization and everything like that sometimes the headline alone uh uh has so much um just anger in it right that someone can just look at the headline share it and and kind of signal to their group like yeah look what the other side's doing or you know whatever it is um but yeah so what i what i really found interesting too it's something i, I didn't even really know the history about until your book but anyways the the main focus of the first half of the book is about the man who basically invented divorce mediation and it was it was really interesting to hear this story so without me you know spoiling it uh i think it was you know very humanizing how you kind of told more of his story and how he even though he was the creator of like this this mediation that so many people use today like during such times of high conflict like divorce like he had his own personal struggles with conflict that you touch on in the book so when he when he first gave this uh media uh this mediation method a try you discuss how he realized the importance of curiosity so in your opinion and through your research for the book, like how does curiosity help us when we're having some sort of conflict with others? Like curiosity is something I always try to, you know, you know, 
kind of keep in mind and stay in that kind of mode. It's something I learned when I started practicing like mindfulness meditation and everything like that. And curiosity is kind of what fuels my reading and learning and all that kind of stuff. But, um, but yeah, uh, have you have you discovered uh, any helpful tips as well for people to get curious? Like I know it's something I struggled with for a long time, but I'm wondering if you have any any tips you could share with the lovely folks out there. One of the things I noticed is that it's kind of impossible to feel threatened and curious at the same time. You know, if you think about it, it's very rare that you might feel both. And there's good evolutionary reasons for that, right? But what tends to happen in high conflict is that you feel perpetually threatened. Sometimes you are, but often it's the perception as well. So even when you're not directly threatened, it feels that way, right? And so you lose that that part of your human experience. You lose the ability to be surprised, to be delighted, to be curious, which is a huge loss, right? Spiritually, but also uh, practically, you know? We know from the research that for example, nonviolent social resistance movements are twice as effective as violent movements. Violent movements are a form of high conflict, right? But in, in nonviolent resistance movements, you're able to retain some dignity for yourself and for the other side. It's hard to do, right? But it's much more effective and it's sort of better for your soul, so curiosity, how do we keep it alive even when we profoundly disagree with other people, even when we do feel threatened, right? One of the ways that I talk about in the book to keep conflict healthy and to keep curiosity alive is to practice a form of active listening that is called looping for understanding, which I learned from Gary Friedman, who's featured in the book. And even though I had spent decades interviewing people, this was very different than anything I'd ever done. It's a way of listening to the other person and then distilling what they've said into the most elegant language you can muster, playing it back to them, and then checking to see if you got it right. So you're actually proving that you're trying to get them even as you disagree. You're not just saying, I hear you, right, 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 nodding your head. You're proving it. And it is amazing the effect it has on the other person, even when you get it wrong, even when they say, no, 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 that's not quite it. It opens them up. And in the research, you can see that people say less extreme things once they start feeling heard. You know, they're more likely to acknowledge ambivalence. They're more likely to hear things they don't want to hear. So it's kind of like the prerequisite to curiosity, to good conflict. And in some ways... Conflict can be a game of chicken, like who's going to listen first, right? But it's a really important skill to practice and to practice it in a low stakes environment all the time, because it's not something that we're typically well trained to do. Most people do not feel heard most of the time, which is sort of how we got here. And that's because most of us are not very good at listening. So I talk a lot more about it in the book, and there's lots of different forms of active listening out there. But even though it sounds kind of squishy and soft, I highly encourage people to check it out. It's actually quite intellectually and emotionally fascinating and challenging. Uh, and it is a way to keep curiosity alive because you're surfacing the assumptions you're making and you're asking, am I right about this? Is this really how you feel? And if you ask it with genuine curiosity, it is amazing the effect it can have on the conflict. 
This this is so true, and uh, you know, as you were, as you were saying that, I, I was just thinking about you know my own personal path of you know like recovery and working on my mental health and and working uh, with other people uh, when I was you know at a treatment center working with people with you know mental health issues and trying to overcome addiction and all that kind of stuff, and and I I would try to explain how I learn to foster this curiosity. I love how you say that. Like, it's hard to, you know, hold this kind of like anger or feel threatened while you're also being curious. And something that helped me a ton was uh, perspective taking, right? And it's something that I, I always try to do. And, you know, I'm not perfect at it yet. I don't know if anybody is. Uh, that's why I enjoyed that, you know, you talk about uh, how uh, even um, uh, he would, who, who came up with med uh, mediation was, struggling with conflict later on. But anyways, anyways, what I try to do is perspective take. And, and as it's happening, I try to ask them, it's like, why do they feel this way? Why are they upset? Why are they angry? What is this, what is this attacking within them? You know, is this part of their identity, part of their ego? You know, what, what is going on? Right. And then, you know, there's just all the science behind, you know, I yell at you, you, you get angry and your amygdala starts going off and you yell at me and stuff like that. But, uh, but yeah, that, that active listening, like before I got into just like all sorts of books, I was really into like, uh, uh, like therapeutic, uh, books and, uh, psychology. And I learned a lot about active listening and everything like that. And something I try to do, even I try to implement when I'm talking with amazing guests like yourself is to really listen and, and repeat what was said, but I try to do this in normal conversations too. Like for anybody listening out there, it, it is just a great skill to have. Like think about, think about how great you feel when you feel heard by the other person. And now think about how you could do that for other people. You know what I mean? So, so I try to really listen and say, okay, well, if I'm understanding you correctly, you know, and I repeat it back or, you know, uh, even finding common ground, but I try not to move the conversation forward until I make sure we're on the same page because I know all of us, all of us have been in these situations of, of high conflict where we're, we're both just arguing about two completely different things because our emotions are going absolutely bonkers. Um, so something else that was really great about the book is, is how you explain how people and companies can benefit from conflict. And I've always thought that it was so strange that people think like the perfect relationship with a partner or significant other is one where you never fight. You just never fight with the person and that's the perfect relationship. And, you know, there, there's a lot of companies out there that don't, you know, promote or even foster an environment for healthy conflict. So in the book, you talk about how people can benefit from healthy conflict with friends and family members uh, and significant others and how uh, places of business can benefit from making a, a place that, that has healthy conflict. So what are some of the benefits of conflict? And for, for those uh, like myself, I used to be a people pleaser. I've gotten, I've gotten much better over the years. But for all the listeners out there who are people pleasers or they try to avoid conflict at all costs, is there anything that they can do to, um, you know, like start trying to have healthy conflict and taking these baby steps? Most of us, I think, typically try to avoid conflict. It's unpleasant, right? It feels bad to have distance open up between you and people you care about, or even people you don't care about. 
It's typically something most of us, not everyone, most of us try to avoid. In the book, I tell a story of a large and influential synagogue in Manhattan that had a lot of internal conflict over Israel. And eventually this conflict really flared up and it made the front page of the New York Times. People started, you know, disparaging each other in public. The rabbis were more left-leaning and some of the congregants were more right-leaning. People ended up leaving the synagogue and it was just really a mess. And the rabbi's initial response was to apologize and try to calm the situation and move on, right? Which is what most of us would do. And what happens with really deep conflict like that is it doesn't go away. So it just kind of, it just kind of ferments underground. And that's what happened there. So a year later, flared up again, this time making the pages of the Washington Post. And eventually the rabbis, to their credit, decided to do something very different. They decided to really lean into the conflict, as they put it. They brought in mediators from a group called Resetting the Table who had worked in the Middle East. They had like really hard conversations that were structured and their ground rules that everyone agreed on. But they did this for like a year. They had lectures, they had workshops. It was not easy. You know, it was not like it's sort of sometimes, you know, you hear about these kinds of dialogues and it feels like kumbaya. And it was not like that. You know, it was like an Ironman competition. Like it was very hard on on people to um, to have these hard conversations, to realize some of the things they assumed about each other were not true. But when they got to the other side of that, they found they could really delight in that curiosity, you know, that they found that there were, there were moments of surprise and intrigue and also sadness and anger and frustration. But it was a much better way to go through conflict than, you know, just avoiding it or stomping out of the room or assuming we know. So that's something that I would recommend people practice again in a low stakes environment is try leaning into conflict when it's small with someone you trust, right? So if somebody, you know, a good friend of yours says something that causes you to pause because you feel like, even if it's really small, like they hate this restaurant in in your neighborhood, whatever, learn to be mindful of that sensation, that sensation, which is typically, I want to shut this down. I want to move on. I want to agree and change the subject. Learn to be mindful of that and try playing with it. You know, try saying, oh, really? Oh, that's so funny. That's interesting. Because actually, I really like that restaurant, but I'm curious. Like, tell me what happened, you know? And that's the tone and curiosity you want to get to with hard things. And it's amazing what you find out. And it doesn't fix the problem, but it's a lot better than avoiding it. Yeah, as as somebody who, you know, was a people pleaser and avoided conflict at all, all costs, you know, uh, just... Just something I realize is that, you know, ah, man, you know, real, real quick story. Some of my lo- longtime uh, viewers and listeners know this story. But when I first got sober, I had a panic attack. Uh, it was my first ever panic attack. Didn't know what was happening. And it was all because I was avoiding conflict, right? And that was kind of like a wake-up call to me because I've struggled with anxiety most of my life. But this specific situation where I wasn't, uh, you know, uh, talking with my roommates about something that was bothering me, it literally gave me a panic attack. And it's, so it's something that I've been working on ever since. And, you know, as time goes on, you know, uh, just some things that I do, I try to, you know, I try to think about like what I want someone to tell me if they thought I was wrong, you know, so I can improve. 
But like you said too, like even that curiosity, because I think sometimes we just roll our eyes. We're like, oh, this person's complaining. Like I try to, I try to look at it like every everything's an opportunity to like practice some of these skills. You know what I mean? Like if somebody's telling you about their bad day or whatever, like ask them and say, oh, you know, and can you relate to that? And you know, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that that's been really beneficial to me. But you know, I, I think like you said, in these low stakes environments, you know, like I have my wonderful girlfriend. I have you know my close friends, my family members and stuff. I know these people aren't just going to be like, oh, oh, got into a, you know, conflict with Chris. I'm never talking to him again. But that's, you know, I'll, I'll ask him and, you know, if I disagree on something. And as I have learned to manage my emotions better, um, I'm, I'm experimenting a little bit with it more on, uh, on social media. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, I had uh, Duke professor, uh, Chris Bale, who works in the polarization lab, uh, he runs that. And, and he said, like, one of the main reasons for polarization is that, you know, based on the research, a lot of people with less extreme views just try to avoid the conflict and don't say anything. So I try to think about that and say, okay, even though I want to stay out of this, maybe I'll just bring up a counterpoint, you know? And just the other day, I wrote an article about, uh, or a blog post on the, on the website about um, the new book, Nice Racism from Robin D'Angelo, because it's such a polarizing book. And I'm like, okay, okay. I, I think I could bring a balanced conversation with some nuance <laughs> and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it's great to find low stakes environments to kind of practice this with people you know, love and care about you. And then it'll, it'll help you in, in other areas. Um, okay, so speaking of, speaking of social media. So this is something that I, I always think about when I think about conflict. Um, so much of this happens online like arguing with strangers and there there have recently been like a lot of conversations around like free speech and cancel culture and personally back in 2019 you know uh i i wrote a book about my experience uh you know being canceled on youtube and i just had so many people coming at me like hundreds of thousands like for everybody who's new out there like it it is an experience that you know just almost took me down right um like mentally just everything and you know without getting too far into the, the details something i've realized is that it, it's kind of difficult to express different ideas which is one of the reasons why i i enjoy these uh books like yours about conflict so although i'm a recovering addict and a huge advocate for mental health i'm extremely extremely reluctant now since that experience to go against popular opinion of the crowd because of fear of the backlash. I've seen a lot of other people express this uh, same opinion. And, you know, as I continue to talk to different like uh, professors who write books and things like that, like this is something that they're seeing where, you know, even academics are afraid to publish certain research or talk about certain topics and just bring them up as thought experiments. So there's this debate around whether or not cancel culture even exists. So, I, I personally define cancel culture as having like a few characteristics, right? Like in the case of a specific incident, it seems like the punishment is not proportionate to that incident, right? Uh, the next one is a lack of forgiveness and this ability to give the person an, opportun uh, an opportunity to learn and grow. Um, 
it's kind of like attribution bias. Like we always give ourselves a break, but we think the other person, like this is, this is, they're a flawed person. They're evil. They're mean. They're, they don't care, you know, whatever it is. And another characteristic of cancel culture, I feel is, uh, and it's most noticeable is that there's this lack of nuanced conversation. There's this kind of black and white thinking around it, right? Like a person is instantly put into a category based on something they did or an opinion or whatever it is, right? And it's something I struggle with and I try to teach others because like I, I'm a recovering addict and I'm like, hey, you know, I, I'm living proof that people can change. Anyways, what are your thoughts uh, around this type of conflict in the social media uh, climate? Do you feel that the majority of people know how to have healthy conflict and debates of ideas? Or do you see a lack of tolerance and ability to have these kind of healthy disagreements? Like either way, what what do you think are some solutions? And I apologize for the long-winded question, but it's <laughs> something that I, I, I'm quite interested in. Um, I think this is a, I like this sort of definition of cancel culture. I think it's important to define it because it's kind of getting, you know, like so many things uh, overused and exploited. So it's important to have some definition of it, right? Um, you asked if I feel like the majority of people know how to have healthy conflict and debates, particularly on social media. Uh, I was talking to a minister in upstate New York for a story I was working on for The Atlantic a couple of years ago. And he said something I've never forgotten, which is, you know, when he first became a minister, it took him like five years before he dared to talk about politics from the pulpit. And it's still really hard, you know, and he can get in big trouble. But he knows it's important not to ignore conflict, right? But it's an art. There's a craft to it that's incredibly nuanced. There's a lot of psychology and practice that's required. The problem is everyone now has a pulpit and there's no training, you know? Like just as an example, there are literally is like 50 years of research showing that direct argumentation does not work on humans. So just giving people the facts and arguing for your point of view not only doesn't work, but it can backfire and usually makes the other person dig in, right? But if you look at most political posts on social media and, you know, most op-eds for that matter or news, you know, debates, there is this built-in assumption that it works, <laughs> right? So what if you, you had to take, I'm just, you know, making this up, but if you had to take like a three minute, you know, video tutorial on persuasion before you got on social media or before you posted, you know, overtly uh, argumentative posts, it would be so interesting to see. It may not work, right? Because that's direct argumentation. <laughs> now we've gone full circle. But it would be so interesting if we did try to develop skills in people so they got better at argumentation and persuasion and realize that, you know, just to, quake, to take one extreme example, humiliation is the absolute most counterproductive thing you can do, particularly in high conflict. Nelson Mandela has a great quote about this. He says, there's nobody more dangerous than one who has been humiliated, even when you humiliate him rightly. So to your point about cancel culture, this is directly counter to people's goals, if you publicly humiliate someone, right, you are handing them or their side or their group a weapon, which will eventually be used against you, right? So a lot of this is about the tools outpacing our skills and understanding of how humans actually work. 
Yes. Oh my God. Yes, Amanda. I could talk to you about this for for hours. Um, and yeah, like I, I've been, you know, interviewing uh, scientists and researchers and uh, Mick West, who was on here, who debunks conspiracies. And the number one lesson I learned and the number one lesson I wish everybody would learn is what you just said about persuasion. Like when it comes down to it, like facts do not switch just change somebody's mind right we want to believe like that that happens but it's one of the reasons why i'm so interested in reading books on human irrationality and behavior and all these other things because you would think that if you're just like oh here here are the facts and that should change your mind but like we all have to sit back and think about how often that's actually uh worked but you know you bring up this this other great point about the humiliation Right. And that's why when I look at this stuff and when I look at the dog piles and everything that like that, that are happening when someone gets, you know, quote unquote canceled, I'm like, this is not productive because the thing is, is we we have to provide people a path to redemption. Right. Whether the, the incident was small or large, whatever it is, like I said, it feels like the proportion is never correct when it comes to these situations. Like you do one small thing or whatever, and it turns into something huge but we have to offer a path of redemption and that's one of the biggest issues i see like i'm a recovering addict and i've worked with literally hundreds of other people trying to get sober and if you tell that person like hey nothing that you do will improve your life they're not even going to try to change and i think most of us most of us we at least want to believe you know that people can change like look at the criminal justice system we want to believe that someone goes and serves their time and they can come out and be a productive member of society right but we have to provide them with that path so when i look at this kind of uh you know situation that we get in on social media i'm like the the person that you're attacking right now and dogpiling on and when you're calling them the worst person ever for this minor offense or what you deem you know incorrect you're not providing them with a path for uh, redemption. So what incentive do they have to improve, right? So I, I don't know. I always, you know, I always try to uh, stay in the mindset that people can change, you know, like I don't think, uh, you know, a, a lot of people say that, uh, you know, cancel, cancel, it's not cancel culture. It's just, it's just accountability. Like I'm all about accountability. Like that's how healthy societies run. There has to be accountability, but, but accountability only works if you provide that person with a path towards redemption. But anyways, like I said, like I said, Amanda, I could talk to you about this for hours. So, um, last, last question for you. And it's a little, it's a little in depth, but you know how I roll. So, so I don't know if it's the fact that, uh, Donald Trump has been like removed from platforms like Twitter and Facebook or what, but I personally feel I feel that there's been less political polarization online, but this can be due to, you know, my own availability heuristic and the fact that I've, I've taken a pretty big break from politics since Biden was inaugurated. Like I'm still staying in the loop, but I'm not like as in it as I was like leading up to the election and, you know, uh, just getting Biden inaugurated and everything like that. But anyways, in the book, you discuss our tribal and group mentality and how it affects political polarization as well as high conflict in a variety of different ways. So what can you tell us that you've learned about our group mentality and politics as well as other areas of conflict? And 
on an individual level, what I always like to ask when talking about the subject, like on an individual level, what can we all do to check ourselves if we feel like we're not thinking independently and we're kind of getting sucked into that group mentality? I identified four fire starters that tend to lead to high conflict in the book. And one of those fire starters are powerful group identities. Humans, one of our specialties is we experience collective emotion. So something, once we're in a group, something doesn't have to happen to us personally. It can happen to someone we've never met. But if they're in our group, our brain feels it the way we feel something happening to us. So if our basketball team wins, right, we can tell from the research that people actually feel that they personally, as a fan of that team, after the game ends, they feel that they are more skilled and estimate that they will do better on puzzles and tests and that kind of thing. Um, And the reverse is true. So if we feel like our group has been humiliated or insulted, we feel that in the same part of our brain that processes pain. So groups can really supersize high conflict. And they're one of the things to be very aware of in conflict. And even in your own internal experience of conflict, what you notice is that you may feel a real sense of intense discomfort when you have any conflict, even if it's just internal, with people in your group. And that's because we're wired to really stay with our group. So it's very hard when people defy their group. They tend to get ostracized. It's very lonely. So one thing to consider is if you want people to leave high conflict, you have to welcome them home. Now, this can be hard to do depending on the person and the situation. But all over the world, you know, I went to Colombia to learn what they've learned from, you know, half a century of civil war uh, in interviewing psychologists who study conflict in Israel and, and in the U.S. in gang conflict in Chicago. You can't ask people to leave high conflict alone. There needs to be a group of people leaving it with them and they need to be welcomed home. This is, again, easier to say than to do because there still needs to be accountability. But it's important to realize how exquisitely painful it is to break with your group. As Curtis Toller, the former gang member who's profiled in my book says, you can't leave an identity behind. You gotta replace it with something. So it's really important as people feel like they want to leave high conflict to help them cultivate other identities outside the conflict. Often the easiest one to revive is their identity as a parent or a grandparent or a child. That's one that you see working pretty well all over the world. And often, not always, it resides outside or just outside of the conflict. So asking people to give up a group identity is really hard. But asking them to embrace a new identity or revive an old latent identity is totally doable and still hard. Yeah, I think that's that's a, such a great tip right there, right? And when we feel like we're getting sucked in is to, you know, uh, uh, get into, you know, one of our other identities. Like, you know, I'm a father, you know, I'm a boyfriend, you know, and, and it can it can kinda it can kinda help. But yeah, when I when I uh, when everything happened to me, like the f- 
the thing I really wanted to learn about at first was uh, crowd psychology. I was like, why? You know, that was when I first really started seeing the irrationality. I'm like, it doesn't seem like people are, are thinking for themselves. You know what I mean? So I try to learn so much about it. I try to be mindful and everything like that. And, uh, you know, we, we, we didn't touch on it earlier, but I think you discussed this in your book is one of the reasons that, you know, there should be a, an environment of healthy conflict in the workplace is to avoid that kind of group mentality. Like we need to have opposing ideas. You can't just have everybody agreeing with each other or staying silent or bad ideas uh, might, you know, get get out there and, you know, the company wastes a bunch of time and money and all that stuff. But anyways, anyways, uh, you have been amazing. I've taken up too much of your time. So thank you once again so, so much for coming on, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me, Chris. I enjoyed the questions. Take care. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Amanda Ripley about her new book, High Conflict. Like how how awesome is she? Like that was that was a great conversation. And and when I talk to, you know, Amanda or even people like Amanda where where you know they like to discuss this and how we how we could better communicate and and try not to get into these like high emotional states when we're debating with people and stuff like that. Like, I, I don't I don't know. I've personally felt, and I, I have more authors coming on to discuss this topic as well. But I personally felt like it's it's very rare. It is very rare that people can have just healthy, mature debates, right? Um, you know, there's there's this weird expectation, like, what, are we all supposed to agree with each other all the time? No, but we should be able to talk about our different ideas, see where each other's coming from, and maybe at the end of that conversation, you know, we, we disagree. Like, I could talk to someone who absolutely loves sushi, and I don't, well... I'm vegetarian, so maybe that's a bad example, but you know what I mean? Like some people, we just have different uh, opinions and different views and different backgrounds and different upbringings. So anyways, Amanda Ripley's book is so, 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 so important right now. And that's, I'm, I'm glad I was able to include it this week with uh, the other episodes about scientific thinking and healthy conflict and all that stuff. So make sure you check out the description down below. Go follow Amanda. Uh, she's she's pretty active on Twitter and she is a journalist as well. So she's always, uh, you know, producing content and everything like that but this book is amazing. There's a link for the book down in the description uh, below. So thanks once again to Amanda. And before I let you go, remember, if you like this episode, if you're new here and you haven't yet, make sure you are following the podcast, whether it's on Apple or Spotify or whatever platform you're on. Uh, if it's on Apple, leave a rating, leave a review. And yeah, share this. Like, share this, share this specific episode with some people. Like, who... Who could not benefit from this episode? So share this out there on Facebook, Twitter, you know, wherever, right? And uh, yeah, uh, a lot of you, I'm, I'm so happy with the community here. A lot of you get in touch with me uh, on social media. My social media links are down below at The Rewired Soul on Instagram and Twitter. And I'm trying to get you all more involved. So feel free to follow me. And there are also some links down below uh, if you want to support the channel or the podcast in any way. By the way, I, I think I say channel a lot. Um, because I'm previously like all YouTube. So when I do my, my little outro, I, I slip up and say channel. But anyways, if you want to support the podcast, there's links down in the description below, such as uh, you can go to therewiredsoul.com, get some of my books. Uh, you can become a patron. And there is an affiliate link down below. As you guys hear me in these episodes talk about my personal experience, a lot of what I do is for my mental health. So there is an affiliate link down below for better help online therapy. I I personally use them. I love them. And yeah, if you feel like you need some help, 
go ahead and check out BetterHelp Online Therapy. All right, but anyways, that's all for this episode. And tomorrow, tomorrow, to wrap up this week of scientific thinking, I have the skeptic himself, Michael Shermer. And we had such an awesome conversation, so I can't wait for you all to hear it. All right, but anyways, have a fantastic rest of your day. Don't be afraid to have a little conflict in your life. And I'll see y'all in the next one.